when we invest in and work at unity among brothers and sisters, we're not trying to create something that just isn't there, that just isn't going to happen. We're seeking to live out, to preserve, protect, and promote something that God has already created, something that God, through the gospel and by His Spirit, has already achieved. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. Today, we're going to be taking a look at Ephesians chapter 4 and what it means to be united in Christ. And Jonathan, that's a phrase that we may often hear. There's unity of the body, but yet when I look at the church today, it is so fractured and it seems like we have so much disunity. There's so much hostility. Uh, How do we even think about the body of Christ being unified? Well, one of the things that Paul's really been at pains to show us so far in Ephesians is that as Jesus saves individual people and reconciles sinful people to God, he also reconciles divided people to one another. And he creates a true unity where there was none among a group of people. But of course, our great challenge as Christians is to live that out and to live it out well. And we don't always do very well at that, the truth be told. We don't, but I mean, if this is something that Christ has already accomplished, it means that is something we ought to be striving for, right? It is something we ought to be striving for. It's interesting here in in the verses we're going to think about together in the program, uh, Paul speaks of living in unity as living in in a manner worthy of the calling we've received of the gospel. So to live worthy of the gospel is to live as a unified people, and we need the help of the Spirit of God to do that. We absolutely do. We're also going to get into his word and see a little bit more of what uh, Paul says about this from the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 4, so join us there as we begin the message, United in Christ. Here is Jonathan. Our theme this morning is the theme of Christian unity. The heart of our passage is verse 3, and Paul's urgent plea to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's what we're thinking about. That's what we're concerned about. You may be aware that there's been a controversy bubbling away in a major denomination here in Canada concerning a minister who has declared herself an atheist and yet still wishes to remain in her post leading her church. The denomination has uh, deliberated on this and weighed the legal angles and so on, and they have recently announced their decision. They have decided to allow her to continue to minister to and lead her congregation all in good standing. Evidently, belief in God is no longer necessary for Christian ministry. Atheism is no bar to the job. Well, how might we respond to that decision and that declaration? What are we to make of it? On the surface, it seems as though here we are encountering, perhaps, a triumph of obedience to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3. The denomination are bending over backwards to maintain unity with this person. Well, there's no question that the denomination are being very accommodating, but I have to say I doubt very much that the Apostle Paul would be personally impressed. 
It is, of course, an extreme example and an extraordinary case, but it raises for us a big question, the question at the heart of the passage before us. What is the basis of true Christian unity, and how are we to guard and then live out that unity? We recognize instinctively the importance of the question, and we read of its significance again and again in the Scriptures. We think of Jesus' famous prayer as He approaches the cross in John chapter 17, where He makes it so clear that the burden of His heart is for His people to be united. I pray also for those who will believe, says Jesus, that all of them may be one Father. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that You sent me. Christian unity, it matters to Jesus. It matters to Him, not least because it matters for our witness to the world. There's nothing more discrediting to the world around us than to see Christians divided and Christians bickering. And there's nothing more beautiful and nothing more winsome in a divided and a war-torn world than to see believers united and living in harmony with one another. Unity matters. I think we all know that. But what are the dynamics of Christian unity? Where does it come from? How is it lived out? What is its foundation? And how is it preserved? In order to get to the heart of this, in order to hear and to heed the call of verse 3, we're actually going to dive into the second half of the paragraph and then come back later to the opening verses. We're going to think first about the foundation of Christian unity, and we look to verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There are certain times and situations in life when we're thrown together with people, perhaps in an elevator or in a crowded subway car, thrown together with people with whom we have very little naturally in common. We perhaps try to avoid eye contact for the length of our confinement and very much hope that the thing doesn't break down and we don't get stuck there and uh, find ourselves forced actually to engage in conversation. I was in a busy elevator yesterday, and I was reminded of this. I, I think you end up trying to choose an empty section of wall or of floor, or if the thing is really crowded, an empty section of ceiling, and just sort of fix your gaze there and wait for the doors to open once again. We all know the feeling. We've all been there. There are other occasions in life when we find ourselves among people with whom we do have something naturally in common, perhaps most obviously an extended family gathering. We may not spend too much time together with these people on a regular basis. Maybe we live in different cities or even different countries, but we have a shared history, shared contacts, shared experience, even shared DNA. As they say, blood runs thicker than water. And so in those cases, when we come together, there is this natural affinity. And if we work at it a little, normally some type of relationship can develop. Now, when it comes to church, when it comes to relating to one another here in this place, sometimes it can be a little hard. Sometimes it can feel a little bit awkward or, or strained. Sometimes it can be a challenge, no question. But among true believers in Jesus Christ, the scenario is much more of the family gathering and less of the elevator or the subway car. 
However different we are, however hard or awkward our dynamic could be, the truth is that if I am a follower of Jesus and you are a follower of Jesus, you and I have the most important thing in all the world in common together. For all our many differences, we have a shared spiritual DNA. We have a shared spiritual life. There is a natural unity and a natural affinity among us. And so when we invest in and work at unity among brothers and sisters, we're not trying to create something that just isn't there, that just isn't going to happen. We're seeking to live out, to preserve, protect, and promote something that God has already created, something that God, through the gospel and by His Spirit, has already achieved. And I think we see and we experience something of the beauty of this when we travel to different parts of the world and we go to a place where the culture is different and the language is different and the history is different and there may be all kinds of natural divisions, but we land there and we find a group of believers and we suddenly discover, I'm among my family. It's a beautiful thing. I'm sure many of you have experienced it. And the basis of all this, of course, is the one God to whom we belong and the one faith which we share. Just notice how Paul grounds all this theologically. Notice how he grounds it all in truth. Notice how he grounds it all in God Himself. There is, verse 4, notice with me, one body of Christ, one true church. There is one Spirit of God who indwells us and unites us. There is one gospel hope, one heaven, one future to which we're all headed, one salvation in which we trust, one Lord, the true God of heaven and earth, one faith revealed in the Scriptures, made manifest in the Son, proclaimed by the apostles, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Now, this is objective reality. This is the true foundation. And if we belong to the one God through trusting in the one faith, the one saving death and resurrection of Jesus, who died for our sins and rose again for our justification, if we have the one Spirit, we are united as one people. Whether we feel it or not, whether we're experiencing it in its fullness today or not, the truth is we are united in Christ. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, a message called United in Christ. And we're going to get back to this message, taking a look at the first six verses of Ephesians chapter 4 in just a moment. But this message is part of a larger series called The Unsearchable Riches of Christ, where we have been taking a look at the book of Ephesians. And if you've missed any of the broadcasts in the series, you can come to our website and listen online. Just stop by EncounterTheTruth.org. That's EncounterTheTruth.org. O-R-G. All right, let's get back to the message. Once again, here is Jonathan. This is objective reality. This is the true foundation. And if we belong to the one God through trusting in the one faith, the one saving death and resurrection of Jesus, who died for our sins and rose again for our justification, if we have the one Spirit, we are united as one people. Whether we feel it or not, whether we're experiencing it in its fullness today or not, the truth is we are united in Christ. Now, all that makes good sense to us, I think. I think we can follow Paul's logic here. 
But here's the hard thing to work through and to consider. There is only true unity among those who hold to the one true faith. If someone calls themselves a Christian but doesn't actually believe the one true and apostolic biblical gospel, well, there is no genuine unity there to discover and to tease out. There's no shared foundation to build upon. And actually, to try and generate unity or pretend there is unity where that gospel faith is not in common, well, it's just a lie. It's a charade. It's a show. It can sometimes be very well-intentioned, but naive calls for unity among all professing Christians, a unity with anyone who names the name of Christ, whatever the finer details of their creed, whoever they really understand Jesus to be, whatever they may think that He achieved at the cross or didn't achieve, whatever their lifestyle and whatever their obedience to the Scriptures. If they name the name of Christ, we, we should stand with them. We should be united with them. That's often the expectation and the urging when we start talking about Christian unity. But that call and that urging can actually be quite dangerous if we pursue a unity that is grounded not in the truth, but in a desire for relational cohesion and peace. Ultimately, at some point, when you're pursuing relational unity or structural unity at all costs, ultimately you end up in a place where an atheist is allowed to lead a church, when an unbeliever is allowed to serve as a pastor, where the faith is set aside entirely. Ultimately, you end up in a place of absurdity. Now, often calls for undiscerning unity are motivated by a desire, actually, to preserve the church's witness, and that's a real consideration and a concern, as we've already said. But actually, when we're concerned about our witness to the world and what unbelievers might think, we need to recognize that the world around us is just as unimpressed by theological compromise as it is by any tendency to divide. I was quite struck in recent days to read an opinion piece in the Toronto Star, a paper not known for any particular Christian bias, pro-Christian bias of any kind, a paper I might have expected to celebrate the news of an atheist in a pulpit and actually to read very strong criticism, very strong criticism of the inconsistency and even the hypocrisy of that decision to leave the atheist pastor in post. The writer went so far as to say that the congregation's enthusiastic embrace of a leader who denies the faith, it's actually idolatrous. That was the language used in that particular article, the language of idolatry. Strong language, but actually as I reflected upon it, I thought that's quite perceptive. Well, that was the verdict in the Toronto Star. And here's what it tells me as I read that. The world is unimpressed by Christians who don't believe what we say we believe. The world is unimpressed when people who are meant to care about the truth and Christians are meant to care about the truth end up throwing truth out the window. Despite what we might imagine, our witness to the world is not improved by seeking unity at any cost. 
Perhaps the greatest attempt at creating Christian unity in modern times was the creation of the World Council of Churches in 1948. Now, some of you have never heard of that. Others might know the history a little bit. But the idea behind this body was to bring together in some visible, tangible, and organizational form as many different Christian groups from all around the world as possible. The organization, which is still in existence today, claims to represent some 590 million people in 150 different countries. The aim is noble. But the problem is, in uniting so many different groups and so many different denominations and so many different organizations, you have to aim for a very low common denominator of doctrine, of truth. Out of necessity, there is almost no substance to the theological basis of this council. All they've got really is a belief in the Trinity and a declaration that Jesus is Savior with no definition of what it means for him to save. Now, that's one attempt at an organizational unity. And there have been some very, very good motivations behind that. But I don't think that that's actually what Paul is driving at here. I don't think he's pushing us to find as much common ground as possible, despite major theological differences, and to try and generate a structural unity that we may or may not have in our hearts. No, what Paul is saying is this. Among those who do believe the apostolic faith, who are really born of the Spirit of God, there does exist a real and true and substantial unity. It is an objective reality. You don't need to find a common structure or attend big global gatherings in order for this to happen. In essence, the big insight of verses 4, 5, and 6 is simply this. Authentic Christian unity is grounded in the truth. Authentic Christian unity can never bypass the truth. We never reach Christian unity by downplaying the truth, by running for the lowest common denominator. No, we actually reach Christian unity by proclaiming the truth and delighting in the truth. And when we do that, what we find is this. True believers, spirit-filled believers, will naturally gather around the truth and find commonality and shared joy in the truth. Unity is grounded in the truth. It's experienced around the truth. But here's the great challenge then, once we understand that principle, where do we draw the lines when it comes to doctrinal truth? On what matters can we agree to disagree with others and still recognize true Christian faith? And on the other side, on what matters can there be no compromise of any kind? Well, that is a hard one. Certain things are obvious or would seem obvious to us. The supreme authority of the Christian Scriptures, the uniqueness and the divinity of Jesus Christ, His sin-bearing, wrath-averting death, His bodily resurrection, His glorious return. But what about areas where believers differ? What about baptism, or ecclesiology, or eschatology? What count as central matters, and what count as peripheral matters? What are primary issues, and what are secondary issues? Those are difficult things to discern, and difficult things to navigate, and Paul doesn't lay out the details for us here, and we couldn't hope to try and generate a list of those things this morning. And so, one of the great challenges for each of us as we go away from this morning is to think over and to begin to figure out what are those lines in terms of truth? What's centrally 
defines the one faith according to the Scriptures and the one hope, to use Paul's terms and Paul's language from verses 4 and 5. I don't know if you've been following the whole saga of Brexit in recent days. I've been keeping a little eye on it myself, wondering what's going to come of the whole thing. The negotiations between Britain and the European Union on Britain's exit from the Union have been very painful, to say the least. And for the British Prime Minister, the pressing question has been to know where to flex and where to draw the line on negotiations. Her, her great challenge has been to discern what would be real deal breakers for her. What are the core non-negotiable issues which, if she compromised upon, would be viewed as a betrayal? of the British people. Now, I don't envy her the job of that. It's a terrible burden. But as I think of her, I do think that for the Christian believer, we do need to be clear, each of us, in our own mind and in our own heart, what are those core non-negotiable issues of the faith, those matters which, if someone differs on them, we, we have to say, well, actually, they don't share our faith. They have a different religion. For each of us, it's important for our own discipleship and growth in the faith to give thought to that. And it's important for each of us to develop a robust enough biblical understanding that we do have some sense of an answer. It's important to think through our faith clearly enough to do that. But sometimes we have to admit, of course, we do get these things wrong. Sometimes we're a little bit too quick to bypass the truth and to celebrate commonality. And sometimes, on the other hand, we're too quick to write off professing Christians because they don't quite belong to our particular tribe. Sometimes we're too keen to protect our favorite pet doctrine, even though it's hardly a central gospel matter, even though it's hardly crystal clear in the Scriptures, even though genuine believers differ. Knowing where those lines may be, it's a tough question of discernment. But where there are true believers, where true unity in the faith does exist, Paul's heart and Paul's challenge is that we should guard and promote our unity. We should live it out in godliness. Well, we've looked at the foundation of Christian unity. Now we turn to think of its protection. And for that, we go back to verse 1 in the start of the passage. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. As we consider the opening of the chapter, we do need just to glance back and remember what Paul has been saying in the previous section, how he closed off that wonderful prayer at the end of chapter 3. And as we glance back, we see that Paul landed on this heartfelt concern for God to be glorified. Verse 21 of chapter 3, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. You see, Paul wants, above all things, for God to be glorified. He wants God to be glorified in his church, in his people. And so Paul begins this plea for Christian unity by reminding the people that he is someone whose life is really now all about one thing and one thing only. It's about Jesus Christ. Paul is officially a, a prisoner of the Romans, but that's not actually the main thing in his mind. He is, verse 1, a prisoner for Jesus. He's captive to Jesus and for Jesus, and it's for Jesus' sake that he is suffering. You see, Paul recognizes that his life is not his own anymore. 
It's a life given over to the glory of God, whatever the cost may be. And that is where we have to pause the teaching now here on Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. Our message is called United in Christ, where we've been taking a look at the foundation of Christian unity today. Next time on the broadcast, we're going to continue to look at that as well as take a look at the protection of Christian unity. So I hope you'll join us. Maybe you can't be by your radio for every program. Well, you can always come to our website and listen online. Just stop by EncounterTheTruth.org. And while you're there, I want to ask you to consider giving a gift of support because Encounter the Truth truly is listener-supported. We depend on your generosity to keep Jonathan's teaching on this station. But as you give a gift this month, we want to say thank you by sending you his book entitled Living by Faith in Turbulent Times. So in light of the fact that we're living in turbulent times today, how do we navigate these crises that we find ourselves in? How do we handle the aftermath that comes as we maybe get on the other side of a crisis? Well, Jonathan tackles those questions by taking us into the Bible's passage on authentic faith, Hebrews chapter 11. We look at God's never-changing word for guidance and help today and find encouragement from key models of the faith. We'd love to send you Jonathan's book as you give a gift of any amount to Encounter the Truth this month. You can give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or when you call us at 833-998-7884. That's 833-99-TRUTH. Well, thanks for supporting the ministry. Thanks for giving, and I hope you'll join us next time.